This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Roger Peters. He's the founder and the master watchmaker of an interesting brand called Hook and Huygens. Roger, welcome. Thank you very much. So your brand, uh, like many, is what you would call a small, independent, high-end watch brand. And we're going to talk a little bit about not only your brand, but brands like yours in general. But I just want to give a little bit of context here. Watch brands like Hook and Huygens um, represent probably at least 10%, I'm guessing, of the overall production of the watch industry. But I think in terms of excitement and interest, especially for collectors, it's obviously a lot more than, than 10%. How would you, when you talk to people, describe the sort of contemporary world of, of I guess, as we call independent watchmaking? Well, um, the cool thing is that um, with a few people in a few years, you can create a company. And I think since the 1990s, that has created a lot of people who were working as employees or just learning to become a watchmaker, inspired them to to actually start a company. And uh, there's been, uh, since that time, dozens of companies. And um, it seems that most of the creativity uh, is in all those um, those small brands. And uh, uh, people like it, although I think if you look at the total turnover and the number of watches sold, it's still a very small part, but it's the most uh, interesting part. And you also see that uh, the feedback I get from uh, yeah, new customers to say they just, they've seen the big brands so much, it's always the same. And uh, they want to see new stuff. And that, that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. I'm really glad that you touched on the concept of starting a brand because one of the things that I've tried to express to the world is that the bloom of independent watch brands is directly related to the entrepreneurial opportunity of starting a company and actually reaching consumers. A lot of this I'm probably sure is thanks to the internet. But prior to that, like you said, if you were a watchmaker or someone that was interested in watches, the ability to start a brand, get it funded, get it distributed, get marketing as an individual was was more or less non-existent. You had to be a very uh, wealthy and well-connected person to do all those things. But starting in sort of the late 90s and, of course, in the early 2000s, it became quite possible, like you said, with a few people in just a couple of years, to produce a product, bring it to market, and and reach customers thanks to new communication tools uh, uh, that the internet provided. Do you agree that this sort of um, relative ease of starting a company uh, and, and the ability to reach consumers was crucial for this sort of new era of, of watchmaker entrepreneurialism? Oh, that's a very good question, but I don't think it's necessarily the internet. I think the first revolution, no, I would say what you first need is uh, in the 1970s, people thought the whole uh, mechanical watch industry was going to die. Like in 1975, the Japanese were going to take over. The whole Swiss uh, turnover of all expectations was like a billion. And the uh, Japanese uh, altogether also had a billion. So the graph looked as if uh, the Japan would uh, take over and quartz watches would take over. And then it still took 
I would say until the beginning of the 90s, before people realized that, hey, mechanical watches are not done yet. And there was a revival. Actually, um, Monsieur Biver uh, from Blancpain was one of the first uh, people who dared to go against the current and invest in mechanical watches while everyone thought it was dying. And then I think it took first a couple of pioneers until, I would say, the 90s somewhere, that people think, hey, there is a future in mechanical uh, watchmaking. And then I think that inspired more and more people uh, to um, start their own uh, uh, movement or their own uh, brand. And I think that is maybe more important than um, the, um, for example, CEC manufacturing. That's also very uh, important, I think, before the advent of um, the internet, um, CNC manufacturing also makes it a lot easier. Uh, it's still very expensive, but a lot easier um, to uh, to create a new watch. Um, and then later, the marketing became a lot easier with the internet. But I would say there's these three things. First, you need a few guys who go against the current and dare to make their own mechanical watch. And then if they're successful, more people will, will also try to do that. Then you have CNC manufacturing, which cuts down uh, the costs and adds a lot of uh, flexibility. And then the third one would be the advent of internet, which enormously reduces your costs of uh, marketing. Um, I think before, um, if you would start, wanted to start your brand, maybe half you would need I would say, I, I'm just saying very rough figures. Uh, maybe in the beginning of the 2000s, you would need a million to start uh, your own, um, uh, to develop your own movement. And you would need a million for the marketing. And I think that million to make your own movement, that's, it's still like that, or even a couple of million. But the costs of marketing uh, go down. Yeah. You're, you're right. I actually jumped to the end there. There was a, a few things that needed to happen, and I jumped to the, the, the final factor that allowed these brands such as yours to exist. And I want to revisit those two things you mentioned. Uh, very, very astute of you to point those out. Um, we'll go in sort of reverse order. First is manufacturing uh, changes. And this is an ongoing thing, but it used to be that to produce the parts necessary to go into a watch, you either had to do them one by one by hand, which was mm -hmm. expensive and needed a lot of craftsmanship, or you'd have to set up these rather sophisticated and and expensive industrial processes uh, with a lot of machines and a lot of people, and you have to commit to you know pretty large um, you know numbers, or else it wouldn't be cost efficient to do so. All of a sudden, uh, CNC technology and, and others um, come in, which allow you to make very precise parts um, in in an automated way uh, in relatively low batches, uh, not not without cost but definitely opens up things that just weren't possible before. So that is, of course, a crucial element. And then before that, I want to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's the most interesting one, is this understanding that the wristwatch market is not just about selling tools which track the elapsation of time. Because you're right, while there was always sort of an enthusiast community and there was always luxury, for a major part of the 20th century, a watch was a tool and it was supposed to you know, be uh, cost efficient and durable and high performance. And a better watch was one that cost less and worked better, mm -hmm. right? And today, 
that paradigm is shifted. And so you're absolutely right. Um, the 1970s was the end of the mechanical watch as, as a tool that competed on that same level as any sort of consumed tool. And into the 1980s and 1990s, it transformed into something between an enthusiast, hobbyist product, luxury item, art piece. And with that came the ability to have lower production numbers, higher price points, and a market interest in creativity and prestige and value as opposed to does it track time well. And those were very, very necessary. Obviously, we take a lot of those for granted that watches are luxury items that they can be produced using modern manufacturing techniques. But you're absolutely right that we would never be in this era if those things hadn't happened over the last 50 years or so. Mm -hmm. It's also nice to, to make a parallel with the, with the car industry. Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, there were hundreds of car manufacturers, very small ones all over the world. There were so many brands. And then uh, around the Second World, well, already before Second World War, but especially right after the Second World War, there was a whole shakeout. And then uh, all the small brands disappeared. I mean, already in Europe, there were like 50 to 100 car brands. And then just a few left. And um, then it goes, the whole industry goes through a bottleneck, I would say. And now um, you see, if you look, for example, at a very expensive sports car, and it's also a very luxury product. There are so many brands now of very luxury sports car. It's not just Ferrari and Lamborghini. Uh, also because it, uh, the whole industry has become um, flexible and uh, you can make uh, yeah, a new brand. Still, it still costs you an enormous fortune. But still, you can make a, a, a new car brand um, because of all these flexible manufacturing technologies, which was a lot more difficult in the in the 70s or in the 80s. So what's the difference be behind the type of person that may have been attracted to go into watchmaking back then versus now? Because to make the decision to go into watchmaking today is similar to becoming an artist, meaning it's very hard. You have to learn a lot of skills. Chances are you'll have a boring job and only a select few get to achieve real success during their lifetimes. Yet if you do achieve that success, you could become very famous and very, very rich. So what is the type of mentality behind um, you, you, the, the modern type of, of, of watchmaker today, would you say? Well, I'm going to make the parallel again with cars. <laughs> Sure. Uh, there is also a couple of car brands who only make like uh, 20 or uh, 30 cars per year. Uh, but there's also car brands who make millions and millions and millions. So if you consider Elon Musk like one of those new guys, eh, already he's already doing it for 20 years, but nevertheless, it was the first big new car brand uh, in America and Europe since the Second World War. And if you... If you look at that, he's not the only one. There's also a couple of very exclusive sports, uh, luxury sports car uh, new brands in the, in the last 20 years. And I think these, the motivation for these two guys are completely different. So if you look at Tesla or you look at uh, BYD and some other huge new Chinese factories, they want to make, again, mass products. Yeah, but in a different uh, market segment or with different technologies, but they want to they set up a huge, big 
uh, multi-billion company and they succeeded. But there's also a couple of guys who just want to make uh, 20 super exclusive um, uh, sports car uh, where each sports car is like uh, $2 million. Uh, so I think the motivation of a guy like, uh, let's say the Swedish guy Koenigsegg, who makes uh, not even 100 cars a year, uh, I think, and all these cars are like $2 million, I think his motivation is completely different. He just wants to make the fastest, most luxurious, most crazy car, uh, no matter the price. His motivation is completely different than an industrial guy come like uh, Tesla, uh, like Elon Musk, who wants to just uh, revolutionize the car industry and make a mass product and try to, his final goal was not the Roadster or something, or a, 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 the Model S, his final goal is to make uh, an electric car which costs less than 30,000 bucks. So I think you can do the same back to uh, watches that there are some um, new brands who just want to make the craziest, most expensive watch uh, possible. For example, Purnell with this double tri-axle tourbillon. And I mean, so uh, uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of dollars that that costs. And another guy who wants to make um, uh, his own brand, for example, these micro brands, uh, who just wants to sell a couple of thousand uh, watches uh, for uh, for uh, a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand? Uh, uh, so it's it, it's it's very vast the range of motivations and the range of type of companies. And uh, I think I'm a little bit in the in the in the middle. I I I have very funny motivation. Um, um, basically, you see around. Between 500 and 5,000 watches per year, there are very few companies because that's very difficult. You cannot make your watch too complicated. Uh, you cannot make it too expensive. But on the other hand, you, you cannot come with a standard watch. So uh, you see that most of the independent watch brands are very happy to sell 50 or 100 or 200 uh, watches per year. And um, and the prices are fifty thousand and up, and uh, you see a lot of micro brands uh, now uh, popping up every year with standard movement in it, and the watch costs between uh, let's say two hundred and two thousand uh, dollars, and there is very few um, brands who want to make a complicated watch and try to make more than a couple of hundred, because then you have to have you have to be able to industrialize and you have to be able to make an exceptional movement. And that's just very, very difficult. And uh, that's why I chose to do that one, <laughs> because then there's almost no competition. That's that's actually a wonderful explanation. Um, and it leads into an interesting discussion about uh, your brand. And just sort of to recap on what you said a little bit, because, again, I want people to really pay attention to the wisdom here, is that it's about striking the right balance between industrial and manufacturing efficiency and creativity yeah. because you need to show that you are unique enough but also efficient enough yeah. that people aren't having to spend $200,000 per product because 
while there are people that do this, it just really limits your market. Exactly. So you want to be as unique as possible, but also as accessible as possible. And to do that requires, I, I guess, intelligence and luck. Yeah, and it also requires that you have the strategy. So I think what happens with some brands, like, for example, Gröbel and Forcher, for a long time, yeah. they were at the top of the, the range, uh, medium price or average price, like almost half a million. And they got a new director and he wants to make more watches. Yeah, but if you want to make three times more watches, you cannot have that same price, you know? The only one who's able to break this rule is basically Richard Mille. He started with a very high price and he keeps on making more watches. But apart from him, um, if you start with a watch from a couple of hundred thousand, then your brand is going to be perceived like that. And um, your uh, old customers are not going to be happy if you suddenly start uh, selling a watch which is five times cheaper. It's as if Ferrari would, uh, would suddenly start making cars for $30,000. Uh, That's not acceptable. It's also not credible. They're not even able to. And the other way around as well, if, for example, uh, Volkswagen, it actually happened to them. Um, if Volkswagen wanted to um, make um, Volkswagen Fieden, I think, suddenly a very luxurious model, a model, nobody's going to dig that. Um, so, uh, or Opel Omega. So you start in a certain league with a certain price, with a certain number of watches per year. And um, I think it's very difficult to, uh, to, to, to change that. Uh, in both directions. You cannot suddenly make a lot more watches and still be very expensive and uh, or always make some very simple watches and suddenly make some really complicated watches. That's not credible. And I think the biggest problem, for me at least, but I think also for other brands, if you want to start from the beginning and you want to make a very complicated watch for a reasonable price, then you need a lot of money in the beginning. And uh, most independent watchmakers have decided from the beginning, like, okay, I want to make, uh, for example, HYT in the Neuchâtel with hydraulic watch. Their first watches were like about 50,000 US dollars. And then later they wanted to go down and develop their own movement. But that's basically too late. You start too high. Um, and if, but if you, if they would have started from uh, average price point, for example, 30,000, they would have needed a lot more investment in the beginning. So most of these small independent brands, they just think like, okay, I want to make a profit within two years. This is all the money I can invest. And they're kind of obliged in the beginning just to survive, to start with a high price. And then they are stuck with that high price for forever, if I simplify it. I hope that people listen to what you said like three or four times because if you want to know some of the things that a, a, any new brand should be thinking about, it's what Roger was talking about. The strategic element <clears throat> is so crucial because I've seen, and you've seen, Roger, as well, br new brands with cool stuff, but they've had to pivot several times, whether it's the price point, whether it's the production numbers, whether it's the distribution model, it's the yep. marketing like they go into it, you know, it, it, with with positive intentions, but they realize that they screwed up somewhere, and they have to shift strategy. Sometimes they can, often they cannot. But the less planning you do in all of these areas, 
is crucial. And it has to do with, can I make this product? Should I make this product? Does the market want this product? Can I reach consumers with this product? These are very important questions that any company should should uh, uh, determine. But in the watch space, you oftentimes see people who come out with brands because, again, it's it's easy to come out with a brand. There's no, it's not like a car where you have to pass a bunch of safety regulations, right? You just come out with a watch, um, and people can do it without, you know, figuring out all the steps. And the and the psychology of the consumer is really, really sensitive in regard to everything from the perception to pricing. Uh, Roger, you mentioned how you know you come out with a million-dollar watch and then all of a sudden you're selling a, a $30,000 watch and the people who spend a million on it are like, hey, what the hell? Uh, Richard Meal, in a lot of ways, is a signal that you are very, very wealthy, meaning that Richard Meal is trying to create an aura that only super rich people can wear it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not super rich... You shouldn't be seen wearing a Richard meal. And that's an image that they've curated and they're trying to protect. It's really not even about the watch. That's a whole branding consideration mm-hmm. entirely absent from the manufacturing and design of a product. Mm-hmm. But it is part of the necessary strategy. And so – now, did you do this alone? Was this just sort of you – knowing what you know about the industry and determine this? Or did you have a, a group uh, uh, of people who said, hey, Roger, you should think about this thing? Oh, no, 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 no. I, um, so I, my basic competence is uh, to design complex mechanical, mechatronical products. Before I was working, I was not working in the watch industry. But I always uh, was also looking at markets. And normally you have two different people. So you have one big guy and one technical guy, and I'm a technical guy with a little bit of uh, business knowledge. So my approach all in the beginning was not, uh, let's go develop a movement. That's what all the watchmakers do. <laughs> let's just start. Let's start with the technical stuff. But I started with the markets. I spent a lot of time making a database of all the brands I knew and analyzing what is their turnover, what is their unique point, how many employees do they have, how many watches per year do they make, et cetera, et cetera, to figure out all these brands, all these market segments, huh? all the analysis of the market, and then think, okay, where are my chances the, big, uh, the biggest? And then you have to, not, it's not only about price, it's also about uh, how do you want to distinguish yourself on, on technical complications? How do you want to distinguish yourself on aesthetics? There's these two axes and the price, of course. And then I said at a certain moment, uh, go. But uh, yeah, I did it all by myself. Yeah. All this, all this analysis <laughs> took a long while. It's ridiculous, but um, I, I'm still profiting for it because I don't have to change my strategy. I think I won't have to change my strategy anymore because the most difficult thing is to fi- is not to find out who had a lot of success. And so if you look again, I make the 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 the, the parallel with uh, with cars. You can find all the success stories of Tesla everywhere. But next to Tesla, there's nine people, uh, nine companies who didn't make it. And these you have to analyze. Why did they not make it? You know, what was wrong in their strategy or their technology or what did they do wrong? And then you have to dig because it's always, they call it the survivor bias. Yeah, It's always easy to look at, uh, for example, Richard Miele uh, and, and think like, Okay, oh, that seems easy, yeah, but you can actually not learn a lot from Richard Meal. He just did all things right, 
but that's not so easy to find out what's right. It's easier to dig and try to find the stories, what went wrong in all those other companies. Yeah, and of course, think, yeah. of course. I like that you mentioned the survivor bias because I like to remind people about that a lot where they, they, they look at a winner and they try to infer what did they do right and oftentimes, it isn't matter what they did right, but maybe something wrong that didn't happen to them. Yeah. It can be very difficult to see that without a larger analysis of the ecosystem. Uh, because you're right, for every one success, there are far more failures. Yeah. And the failures uh, tend to be a little bit more educational, the success stories. And we have Rolex, which is a wonderful example of a success story. And you have people who try to copy elements of Rolex <laughs> in a way which looked at in a sort of vacuum seems absurd. Yeah. Because they, you need a lot more elements than just that one thing they're copying. You know, you, you copy Rolex's designs. Well, you look like a Rolex, but people aren't buying you because you're a great watch. They're buying you because they're hoping people think that you have this other brand, right? They don't really want you. Yeah. You're just seen as a, 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 you know, a, a facsimile of something else that they want. And so it's just very interesting when pe see, people do what, uh, what Roger does all the time and they try to analyze the industry. You've taken um, a more sort of academic approach and serious approach to it, which I highly, highly appreciate. Uh, but again, I, I, I have consulted for startup brands for a, a, a number of years now, and I hear what's on a lot of people's minds, and they really haven't thought out much of what they need to think about. I think most brands, as they're ready to start, have probably thought out maybe 30 to 40% of what they really need to be thinking yeah. about. And they think like, okay, I'm done. I thought about it all. But there's so many more things uh, that they should be thinking about. So my, my question goes back to you and, and, and your analysis. It's also true that there are certain things that analysis cannot help you do. What your watch should look like, what you should price it at, a lot of the creative um, considerations are not things that this sort of data analysis can help you make determinations on. It can give you hints. It can tell you maybe what not to do. It can help show you what questions you need to answer. But ultimately, you need to add an artist touch to starting a watch brand or any new design. Uh, do you agree? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that there's so there is uh, on the business side. There's this balance. Huh? What I'm going to do with my price and number of watches? Huh? Am I going to do something? super expensive, super creative, or I'm going to do something more conventional and more industrial. So there, and uh, that's on the, on the, on the, on the technical uh, axis, I would say, or industrial axis. And on the aesthetical axis, you have another, uh, I would say, um, yeah, equilibrium to that. You can make a watch that looks completely crazy that nobody's ever done before, just outrageous technology, but uh, that's going to be very expensive and that people will not like that forever. So you will find yourself in an eternal cycle of ever crazier, ever crazier, ever crazier. And actually that gets a little bit boring. And on the other side, uh, you can make a boring watch, just a copy of a Rolex, for example, and then you're not going to distinguish yourself. But in the long run, you, if you make a crazy watch, people are not going to buy a lot of crazy watches. So in the short run, you want to have crazy aesthetics to distinguish yourself. But in the long run, most people want to buy a more or less classical watch. 
there's just not a huge market for crazy, crazy watches. So uh, there you also have to make a decision. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to be still be there in 20 or 30 years? Uh, or do you want to, yeah, go crazy from the beginning and go crazy, crazy, crazy. And then a certain moment, I think HYT is the best example of that. If you start playing all the cards of crazy colors, then after a couple of years, you've played all your cards and then, uh, then you have no new cards more uh, to play. Um, and on the other extreme, there's Rolex. They make already uh, <laughs> for a very, very long time exactly the same watches that people like that. So that's also very difficult for a new brand. How can you distinguish yourself in the beginning with, yeah, something crazy? But people don't want on the long run something crazy. And um, I think many new watchmakers fall into that trap of if I make something super, super crazy, super, super futuristic, then um, people will notice me. Yes, but this super futuristic watch is not going to be fun anymore in 10 years. That's, I mean, a whole conversation unto itself. Modern, futuristic, forward-looking design versus classic, reserved uh, you know, the jury is going to be out on what's better. There's just too much interest in both. We we as human beings, I think, all have an equal desire for effective things from the past and, and also being interested about the possibilities of the future. It is true that it's easier in the watch industry to get away with selling a more classic design. But there's this desire to experiment and to um, ask a lot of questions about the future. So I think that the artistry of the modern industry really only comes from these futuristic designs. And what I'll say, and we can move on to a different topic after this, is that it really depends on, on the entrepreneur. You yourself are probably more interested in one type of design versus another, and that's what your brand's going to advance. Other brands started by people who are more interested in futuristic designs, that's probably what their watches are going to look like. Ultimately, you don't know what's going to fit the market. Uh, Richard Meal, I think, surprised a lot of people with the success it had from what you would call as being futuristic designs and opened up the market to being more receptive to those. So it does take a couple of leaders. Remember, the market leaders like Patek Philippe what and, and Rolex, very classic design. So of course, it's it's going to tell the consumer community this is what to value. But the more the mainstream luxury brands embrace futuristic designs, the more that allows for the independent community uh, to have success in addition to uh, classic designs. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's Authenticity Guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an Authenticity Guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase, because everyone deserves real. Let's go to the, the brand name. It's, it's, it's not your name, Roger. It is, uh, uh, you know, two famous watchmakers, yeah. Hook and Huygens. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about your analysis, uh, why you didn't go with your own name and, and, and how you thought about 
the the brand formation process? Because you clearly thought about that as well. Well, with all respect to all the watchmakers who use their own name, I don't think that's arrogant. They deserve it. They make crazy watches, but uh, it's not my it's not my kind of game. I, I would I would feel uh, yeah not comfortable using my own name. I just simply would not cover. Oh, uh, plus that Roger Pierce is a very common name. Uh, and I wanted to make, uh, to, so to be honest, I was looking for old watchmakers' names, traditional watchmakers' names from the past, but I was also looking for just generic names. For example, uh, whatever, a heritage watch, uh, I'm saying whatever. And um, I was just brainstorming out loud and, and just going into watch history and, and just, playing with words. And then I was just flabbergasted when I fell on those two uh, names, because to me, that's almost, or maybe not almost, just the most important invention of the watch is the, uh, the balance spring. And I was just flabbergasted that there was no English brand hook watches, while in the whole horology, I think he, that's the guy who made the biggest inventions, Mr. Hook. And then uh, Huygens, the same. Although there were some people who tried to start brand Huygens, they never really took off. So there was a few times people that um, claimed the name Huygens, but they didn't put any real watches on the, on the market. And then uh, I just thought, well, this is just <laughs> too good to be true. It's going to call it Hook and Huygens. And it illiterates very nice. And uh, it's like if you would would start a, a new brand of watch of um, light bulbs and then nobody names them Edison, you know? Or, uh, yeah, with electric car, Tesla, it's a really good example. Uh, probably Tesla is the best guy to uh, name a uh, an electric car. So they were just available and it seemed really good names. And I think it's also a tribute to, uh, to those two great scientists. So you did your research again, and you got lucky uh, that you found these two names that, when spoken, are, I agree with you, lovely and alliterative. And they both represent very important names in watchmaking. Uh, one, I believe, was an English fellow hook, and Huygens was Dutch. And um, I, th I probably Huygens is a little bit more famous because of the balance wheel and all that stuff. Is there something about uh, the English and Dutch connection that is all relevant to uh, your life as well as what you feel is part of the brand character? Uh, no. Actually, I think if Huygens would have been a German and invented the, uh, of course, it's nice. Uh, I have a Dutch background. But uh, if Heilitz would have been a German and Hook would have been sweet, I would nevertheless uh, take that. I don't think nationality is not that important. But their inventions uh, are most important. And Huygens has made two big inventions. Eh? He made the pendulum clock. That's actually the biggest invention ever in neurology, I think. And then later the balance spring. And Hook made the balance spring and he had the anchor. So both two big inventions in horology. And yeah, the nationality is nice, but uh, it could have been any nationality. Now, how much time did you spend, I guess, percentage-wise on brand, character formation, and the product itself, right? Because I think what people don't always realize is that you can separate the product and the brand. Meaning you could take a product and have it made by a brand that were formed totally differently, but says, okay, and this is our product. 
Uh, sometimes they, they, they have to connect, but not all the time. And so the question is, did you spend as much time on the brand as the product? Did the product take way more time? Did you spend more time on the brand? Um, I'm just curious in, in the brand formation stage. And again, you've already launched and all that, but what would you say took more of your time? So you mean the time up to the launch? Huh? Because Yeah, it, it's it's... Again, a lot of companies come out with just a product and they have like no brand. It's like the most simple thing and they put no time into it. You've obviously thought a lot of this stuff out. Oh. I'm just trying to get people to get an idea of how much effort you put into this versus the product, which obviously was you know, no yeah. no easy thing. Uh, and with the brand, you just mean the name Hook and Islands or you also mean generally some... Everything, the whole the whole character, what you're going to do, the plan. I mean, like you said, it's about a relationship with the consumer, and they're going to sort of uh, they have expectations. Your price points need to make sense. Like, I guess I guess it's more about it's the brand strategy, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So I would say from all those years, because I put a lot of years in this project so far, I think market analysis is maybe 2% of the time. <laughs> so we talked a lot about it, but it's only maybe 2% of the time, but it's maybe 50% of the importance because that's where you go wrong. If you do the beginning, you do wrong. So it's super important, but it doesn't take a lot of time. It took maybe, I don't know, three, four, five months altogether. Maybe it's a little bit more than 2%. But anyway, it's not that much work. And then to make a concept of a watch, so the technical design is also, the concept is also only a few months worth before you think like, hmm, this could, this could uh, be something. And then you spend, I would say, 60, 70% of your time, because this is a very complicated watch, 60, 70% of your time you spend completely on the design behind your computer. Not building anything, not ordering anything, not testing anything, just behind your computer uh, in the 3D design. That is just so difficult and so slow and everything has to be perfect. So from uh, all those years, that's where most of the time went in. And then you also spend, I would say, 20% of your time with, yeah, um, but my colleague did that a lot. So altogether, it's maybe nevertheless 30% of our time together. Uh, that's the supply chain. So if you make something new, often, for example, the hands in that watch, nobody wanted to make those hands. So you have to talk a lot with the supplier, uh, talk a lot, how can we make this part? You have to um, select uh, the suppliers for quality, for price. Uh, you have to visit them. You have to uh, ask for quotes and stuff like that. So to organize your own supply chain, that's also a lot of work. Most people don't even know that or don't understand that, but that's a lot of work. And then the marketing itself, so building, um, let's say, the name, uh, anything that goes with the name. We made paintings. We made some little movies, uh, website, photos. That is maybe 10% of the work. So if you would split all the work that you do into um, commercial marketing and uh, technical, then I would say 80% of everything is technical. Okay, thank you. That was, a, that was a great discussion on the breakdown. I think that's very useful for people to understand. I mean, again, in the future, I want people to sort of 
understand a little bit about what went into uh, the thought process and the considerations of these brands? Because I do believe that we're, we're, we live in an era where making you know small independent watch brands is possible, and that will continue for a while. But eventually in the future, I think the world's going to change, and there just aren't going to be as many little cool artistic watch brands out there for a number of reasons. And <clears throat> I want future collectors to look back and sort of just understand, you know, what what people were thinking, what was going on. Let's let's move to the movement. And you developed a ring movement. It's sort of shaped like a ring and it has a hole in the center which is uh, uh sort of part of the shtick of of your of your model and it is a a very interesting thing. Let's talk a little bit about this ring-shaped movement. Obviously, I'm sure you're very proud of it. it it's 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 interesting. It's it's hard to promote as to people that don't really, I guess, understand movements and things like that. But let's start by talking about, yeah, this movement. What, what do you want to say about it? So, yeah, I had the idea uh, 10 years ago, <laughs> 10 years and a couple of months ago, and I felt that's a good idea. And I went to the patent office, and because that's normally uh, my work also, to have ideas and then find out, okay, somebody else has already thought up. That's normal. Most of the ideas you have, somebody already uh, has that. And then the funny thing is find out that many people wanted to make a watch with a hole in it, but nobody actually did. There are some examples of uh, quartz watches, electrical watches and stuff like that, but nobody made a real um, a mechanical movement uh, with a hole in it. Uh, but there were many ideas. So then you can think, Okay, maybe it's a good idea or maybe it's a bad idea, but to me that was a sign, okay, like if many people think that's interesting and maybe people have sought into that direction, it's probably also a good marketing idea. People are going to like it. And uh, then I took off and then I started developing it. And then I, over the years, I find out, I found out why nobody made that watch. <laughs> why? I want to know. Because it's terribly complicated. Even for me, it was terribly complicated you only underestimate oh. and many of these problems i don't most people even didn't went, go too far but i think if some of those would have gone a little bit further they would have given up because it's just terribly complicated and in some really? ways, yeah, yeah 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 it looks but that's the, the real beauty it's like with football or with cars the real beauty is when something is actually a lot more complicated than it looks it looks easy huh? if uh, messi makes a goal you think like oh my god that was a beautiful goal huh? but you almost think like oh it looks so easy i could have made that goal but you and me we could not have made that goal it looks really easy huh? uh, but uh, it's actually very 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 gold and that's the real beauty when it looks more i like watches that are more complicated inside and then they look and i don't like but that's me personal when things are just they want to boost how many parts they have and the complicated, but actually it's not that complicated. And I'm sorry, I'm going to offend a lot of people with that, but from the best example is a tourbillon. The tourbillon looks really complicated, but it's not so complicated uh, if you're a technical guy. Uh, I don't. No, you're, you're, I mean, the tourbillon adds very little, but it's very animated. So I think people, people can uh, value animation 
because it creates a wow factor, right? So it's like, you're right. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you on a technical perspective, but you'll admit you need to smile when you look at the watch dial. And sometimes that spinning tourbillon just gives you yeah, the right yeah. emotion. It's, it's beautiful. It's animated, but technically it's not so complicated. So somewhere around uh, this, all these years of development, I realized why nobody realized these, these, uh, these watches, all these different ideas with watches with a hole in it. But I just pushed through and it's there. And uh, it's been a very, very difficult, long uh, development. Actually, we, I didn't even have that many technical problems. When I finally, uh, that was like one and a half years ago, I used to get the first watch. It immediately worked. So it didn't take all those years because I had a lot of technical problems. But it's just a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, development work. You're sitting behind your computer and you're, you're trying to, to solve all the problems on your screen before you uh, you actually build a watch and that uh, that worked out. So I'm I'm guessing friction is a huge issue in a movement like this. Well, there's actually two big two big problems. One is the casing is completely different because you have an inner casing eh, around the hole. So that means that how can I explain this? That the movement normally floats a little bit in the outer casing. But here, the movement also has to hold the inner casing. And then if you screw the watch together to make it watertight, you basically have an outer casing and inner casing. So you have twice as many joints. And it's everything becomes completely different. So everything you've learned, if you know how a traditional watch works as for casings and waterproofness and how to put the glasses in it, then um, with this watch, you have to start all over again. So the casing was very, very difficult. And um, the other one is that the movement itself, it's just very difficult because you basically have to make a very small movement between the inner and the outer cage in a, a rather uh, big uh, watch, a very small movement. And um, I made it a lot more difficult even that I used the rest of all the space I had in the watch to fill up with barrels and at a certain moment, I decided to put the barrels in parallel and not in series. And nobody's ever done that. And uh, yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. How many how many barrels are there? There's like was there three, four, eight, or more? Eight. Oh, those are all barrels. <laughs> those are all barrels. Yeah. There's eight barrels. Oh my gosh. Much. Yeah. I oh. thought those were other parts in there, but I okay. So, what's the power reserve? It's almost a week. Okay, that's 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 a, that's a heavy amount, and it's what is it operating at? Three hertz? Uh, four hertz. Yeah. Okay, great. So you got you made it up to four hertz. That's that's fantastic. So four hertz, a week of power reserve, and and again, those hands they look heavy because they're like a. It looks like they're big rings. Uh, no, I think that's on, you're talking about the rings that connect to the barrels because the the hands themselves they are also on rings basically everything is on rings eh? you cannot use a sensor yeah. axis everything is on rings and yeah. um, that was also a big uh, challenge because all those rings you have to guide and uh, some are just floating in the air some are guided by little uh, uh, jewels and at the back one of the rings is even guided by six uh, roller bearings <laughs> it's really um, it, it works fine. It's crazy. But uh, when I have to explain the watch to even other watch engineers, it's not so easy. Everything is just completely different with this watch. Yeah. 
I feel that the the ball bearings really were make or break. This seemed like it would have been very difficult to do without that, that being available. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had a lot of discussions about that, but uh, also that worked right from the from the right from the start. I spent years of calculating things and analyzing things, and then uh, in the end, you win back this time because when you put it screw it all together, it works. In that sense, watchmaking is terribly unforgiven. If it's not perfect, it's not going to work. So it's absolutely, you cannot, normally if you make another machine, I've developed other machines in my life. Normally if you're an auto machine, you first make a proto, it works uh, more or less. And then uh, you make another proto a little bit better and kind of your machine evolutes over time and gets better, better. But watchmaking is just terrible. Everything has to be perfect from the beginning. Otherwise, forget it. And if you want to make the watch one millimeter smaller, you can start all over again. No, I, 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 I'm so glad you mentioned that and, and also advocated for doing all the planning in advance. Very often watch brands uh, believe they have a finished movement, for example, and then they go to industrialize it and it doesn't work and then they have to go back to the drawing board. And like a lot of time can be wasted. And it's not that they're trying to waste time or cut corners, but they just they're not doing all the steps necessary. It's a very cautious thing because, like you said, um, one thing goes wrong and it's mission failure. Just one thing goes wrong and and nothing works properly. Or uh, even worse, uh, the, the the watches you know artificially age very fast, or something goes wrong and they need to be sent back, and that's very embarrassing. And then you have a another huge issue. What what is the name of this model? Is it is it the eight barrels? Because I you, you've done so much planning, but I can't seem to figure out the actual name of the model family. So it's um, the name of the company and the name of the, the the brand and the name of the model is actually on the front dial, but it's very very small. I don't need to put big names on the on the watch because there's only watch with a with a hole in the middle. It's only one ring shaped watch, so people cannot. Uh, confused this watch uh, with another brand. So I decided to put the name Hoekenhuygens very small on the dial, but you almost, yeah. but you need a magnifying glass to see it. And on the bottom of the dial, you also see the name of the model. It's called Coup de Foudre. And Coup de Foudre in, oh. in French, it's literally means uh, lightning. So a flash of lightning. But we also use it in French to say that you fall in love with somebody at first sight. So if you meet a nice lady and, you, and you're crazy in love for the first time, you, you're kind of struck by lightning. And uh, that's about the feeling when, uh, when I had this idea of, okay, uh, watch uh, with this concept. I was kind of struck by lightning, but okay, I'm going to make this watch. Yeah. Okay. I, I you know, again, it's, it won't be the first time I will have said a very French name may not translate as well to uh, an, an American market. But on the, on, the, on the website itself, I don't know that it actually says that. It says it on the dial, but it says it um, only there. Um, oh, yeah, that's just true. On the website, I don't even mention it. Yeah, I don't even mention it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which, but, but what you do have is a really... Uh, amazing amount of variation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. on this model. <laughs> yeah. So it, it there's sort of one case and one concept. It's this 44 millimeter wide case, which I'm guessing you make in a few materials. And there's a classic looking ring dial, which has sort of Breguet style font. 
and these hands, which um, are, I guess, peripheral because the center of the watch is like a donut. It's empty. And then I guess the shtick of the brand is you can insert this module, which is um, can be a lot of things. It can be like a little marble-sized polished rock. Uh, it can be um, a holder for uh, an engraved item or a precious stone, a, a big precious stone, I'm guessing. Uh, and it seems to have this like, this universe of charms, which I guess people can buy as many as they want from you to put in. Uh, what do you call this system? And talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so everyone gets confused when they go on the website. They think like, they ask others like, how many models do you have? But, but they don't real, realize it's, it's almost always the same watch with a few different materials, a few different dials. But you can create all the models yourself because, um, yeah, I already have dozens of, of semi-precious balls. I have uh, already a dozen of uh, little sculptures, metal sculptures. There's these precious diamond, brilliant cut diamonds, uh, and basically anything can go in it, gold balls, whatever you want. Um, I call them all together, I call them gems. And the, um, there's basically no limitation. What I'm working on now is a guy who is micro painting on the ball, a small painting. And um, what I want to do is um, that basically people can buy all kinds of different gems, balls, and sculptures um, standard, the ones they see on the website. But they can also order for me, uh, order at, uh, at our brand, um, a sculpture that they would like uh, themselves. For example, if you are um, a fan of, um, well, what's your hobby, for example? Uh, my personal hobby, I'm pretty sure, is watches. <laughs> Nothing else but watches. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a I have a lot of hobbies. I I I find it difficult to narrow it down. I am someone who is interested in a great number of things. I think what I like about watches is that you don't have to settle on anything. You could be, you're, you're, I mean, like watches is the most like inclusive hobby. You could be into you know cars and and nature and flying and science and you know like watches is like the mega hobby right so i i i'm i'm struck with having to identify one thing but you know let, let, let's say i just said watches was my hobby what would be a the center that could represent watches <laughs> another watch but yeah, i've planned that <laughs> but it's going to take a lot more years to put another oh watch a, a, a smaller watch i mean look you could have even a material you know we love we love materials and watchmaking and i think the idea of having a steel ball a gold one a titanium one yeah, yeah, that yeah. i could just swap out because all these materials have a slightly different oh, tactility to them I, I that just, we love so that would be nice i just made up an idea seriously i just made it up if you're so crazy about watches i could make uh, an um a little holder which has a uh, balance wheel, but in the open air this goes just tick tock tick tock tick tock which would you know understand what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah like just, you, see, you see it with gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, you see a balance wheel just moving in the open air a little bit, just as an insert. Um, anything you can uh, that people would like, uh, you could make uh, as a sculpture or as an engraving or uh, as uh, a, a milled piece for, uh, for in the center. And it's really funny because people project their own 
uh, their own uh, hobbies or their own uh, things in that watch, then you start talking with people and said, oh, but I could also put that inside. Or, or I could, for example, uh, a gunslinger. I talked to a guy who likes guns. And the first thing he said, oh, my God, I could put an, a, a real squash bullet in the middle. You know, everyone, yeah, everyone yeah. could. Um, um, and that's what I would like to do, that um, to make a unique watch for everyone. So the, the watch, of course, the movement is the same for everyone. And, but the center can be different for everyone. And um, um, what also is very confusing is that um, people out of the industry said you have to protect that, but I don't want that. So that means that if you would buy the watch, you could also go to your local jeweler and have that local jeweler make something for in the watch without me knowing. I, I couldn't care less. So it's basically almost an open platform for all the jewelers in the world to make something uh, beautiful for inside this watch. That's, it's a great concept. Now, it occurs to me, and again, we're just you know theorizing here about potential value. If no one has made a ring movement before, and you have, is there value in selling this ring movement to others who have their own creative ideas about what a case or dial or hands could look like uh, because it, it offers it, it what appears to be a lot of different creative opportunities. Uh, yeah, but I don't want to sell it out. I spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on this watch, and then you know you're not going to sell your baby. I'm sure that people will well to license, like to sell the not the technology to make it, but actual finished movements. Yeah, no, I would not like that. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, yeah. it's, I, I, I'm not saying you should, but it's interesting your reaction because. Uh, you know, there there are some people who have uh, their strategy has been to develop a movement, use it in their own watches, but also sell those movements to third party uh, companies. That is, again, uh, not the strategy you've chosen, but uh, a equally viable strategy that other companies have. But I still have so many ideas to put new complications to put into that watch. So right. um, by far, I can still work till I'm dead uh, with, with adding stuff to that. Okay, okay. Uh, with adding stuff to that watch. This watch is just the beginning. So I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I would not. Uh, I would not quickly sell it. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. Again, it's just interesting to talk about the the possibilities, you know, in in the types of ways that you could go. Because again, strategy is a key part of it, and you have to. You know, you have to adopt a strategy, and you can change it, of course. But your your decision making as a, a as an entrepreneur with an independent brand has to be strategic. You can't just do whatever you want without thinking about <clears throat> how the market's going to perceive it or how it's going to affect you down the line. Because a commitment to make a watch is several years with a lot of a, a lot of money, and you have to tend to to see things through. And I think that that's another piece of wisdom which has come out of this is that to see things through. Uh, it takes a lot more time and effort than to just come up with a good idea. Mm -hmm. And it really is only those brands that are able to see things through. And once you see things through, and maybe this can be the subject of our next conversation, is in talking about after you, 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 you believe you had a good plan, you launch it, then the market reacts. And has the market reacted in a predictable way? Are you surprised? My guess is certain things have surprised you. But you know, that's, um, I, I think, sort of the next part of the conversation is, you know, launch shock, so to say. Uh, no, actually not. 
Actually, not, no. It's almost um, the only thing where I was really off, but that's almost always when you do very new innovative uh, stuff, is that everything takes more time than you think. Everything takes more time. But um, I do think, and it's difficult to explain, I do think if you do all your homework and you know an industry a little bit and you spend a lot of time looking around, that you can more or less predict the reactions uh, to uh, what you make. And you can also more or less predict if a product is going to be a success uh, or not. Of course, things can always go wrong, but if you do all your homework, yes, you can predict a lot. Yeah, so there was no shock, at least not yet. That's very interesting. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me that you say that. I think that there's a lot of things that you, you can reasonably anticipate. I also think you're quite open-minded, right? I think that other people may have had more firm beliefs about how things should be, and you probably know what those areas that you can't predict are. Like, you've probably been able to figure out, like, these things I can predict, all this other stuff, I'll just have to see. And I guess before we, we end, end the show, what are your current things that you're trying to do right now, your, your current objectives? Obviously, to make watches is a part of it, to make your customers happy is a part of it, but what are what you would say is the the objectives you have outside of running now day-to-day operations? Well, I'm actually at the tipping point of, uh, it was 10 years of preparation, and now since January, we've launched the website, and uh, uh, the whole commercial side is yet to start. This is the beginning of the marketing. This is the beginning of the sales. Last year, we, we sold only, uh, we, we produced and sold only 10 watches. Uh, as pre-production, that's all secret. And now we're for the first time out in the open. So this is really a tipping point of uh, doing all these technical preparations and all the development and supply chain and all that kind of stuff towards becoming a commercial uh, enterprise now and focusing on marketing and uh, sales. Of course, the development will continue with new complications. But um, the first uh, goal now is to uh, to find the customers to sell the first uh, hundred watches this year, and then um, and then the rest of my life <laughs> will probably uh, spend uh, every two or three years adding new complication. So, uh, but that to me is relatively easy. The, the the biggest, the most difficult thing is now is this first. The first year of introducing and surviving, and if I survive uh, uh, this year, then I'll probably survive a lot of uh, years more. So that's what to focus on, surviving. (laughs) Yeah. Very good. Very good. Roger, please uh, plug whatever you want to and let people know where they can learn more about Hook and Huygens on the internet. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so you can find Hook and Huygens is not so easy to write. Um, but you'll probably find it. Um, Hook is with an E, Huygens I'm not even going to spell out. And you'll probably find it. And uh, you can find it on Instagram, you can find it on Facebook. Uh, but I think the, the best, you can find it on YouTube, but the best place to look is just on our website, www.hookandhuygens.com. And you can just call us directly and I'll pick up the phone. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Roger Peters, founder of Hook and Huygens. Roger, thank you so much and talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. 
Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>